Good day, Stu. Here we are in the Crystal Gondola again. Good day, Des. Happy summer. Yeah, we're here. It's the summer now, isn't it? You betcha. Yeah. As evidenced by, you know, our attire today, you know, t-shirts and, and shorts. And, you know, when we did this in January, no, I, no, you might have had shorts on in January. Might have. Now that I think about it. I'm from, anyway, Alber- I'm from Alberia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, listen, uh, lots has happened since we last uh, in front of the mic. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually been a while. It has been. Yeah, yeah. A couple of months. And yeah. um, and um, what is shaking, man? What have you been up to? Well, you know, as as you know, uh, summer's here. We, we uh, in fact, you and I finally got out in the boat here just recently. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the water wasn't, um, you know, wasn't 75 degrees and, and uh, you know, Caribbean temperate, but it was it was fresh. It woke us up, right? Yeah, we got in the water. Yeah. yeah. Kept the yeah. beer cold, buddy. Yes. That, that's what the water does at 68 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Other than that, uh, you know, playing a little soccer, Stu, you know, um, Good. Got, on, got on a new team here. Yeah, Form, yeah. Formidable group. Are they? Yeah. Are, are, are they uh, competitive? Oh, or, yeah. Or, or they're competitive now no, that you're no, on it? No. Well, that, you know, of course. I mean, oh, you can say on, it. Look at me. Yeah, I know. I know. No, it's it's uh, it's a good team. Uh, same league that I was in before, but uh, just, just a better squad. Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah. Well, uh, you know what? If your old squad's listening, they're not going to be thrilled about that. Well, they, they disbanded. Oh well, then then uh, f them. Right? It's it's their fault. <laughs> anyway, uh, folks, what a what a terrific guest we have here with uh, experiences uh, over his career and and uh, things we want to actually talk about with everybody here because these are things that are affecting everybody in in our population and uh, definitely somebody on the front lines. Um, we've got Kirk Starr with us and. Uh, Stu, what do you think about, uh, you know, what we're going to talk about today and its importance? Oh, my God. I mean, uh, Kirk Starr is a long time. I know you're going to give his bio in a minute. Long, long time, you know, um, part of our law enforcement and first responders. And I think, you know, given all of the things that are happening in, in uh, you know, not only our nation, Des, but, but most assuredly our communities, um, I think we got a host of things to talk about. And I'm, yeah. I'm super jazzed about it. Yeah, no doubt. Well, let's get down to the introduction here. You know, Kirk Starr is uh, here with us today. Kirk is a retired sergeant of the Vancouver Police Department with a commendable career in law enforcement spanning 35 years with time spent also in the transit and the correctional system. Kirk was assigned as a sergeant tending to downtown and East End Vancouver. He was also sergeant in charge of the school liaison unit for three years. He was a canine handler for 11 of his 35 years in law enforcement and has been awarded several top placements in competition for police dog handling. Kirk has had stints in across his career as a leader in special situation programs like missing persons, witness protection, and non-suspicious deaths as liaison to the coroner. Since retirement, Kirk has been an investigative consultant contractor for some of Canada's top legal firms. Welcome, Kirk. Thank you. Good to be here. Nice to have you. Stu, uh, th- I know this is your first time meeting Kirk, and, and uh, we've talked uh, about... Uh, uh, some of the things we wanted to get him on here to talk about. I think uh, Kirk's a, a lively, colorful person, so I think it's going to be a good session today. Right on. Well, look, uh, super excited to have you in the uh, Crystal Gondola, as Des calls it. And uh, you're dressed for the occasion. Thank you for dressing appropriately for uh, for today's show. Um, you know what, Kirk? Lots of things we can we can jump into and talk about. Um, but we're going to start, you know, a little soft. And and we got a lot of listeners that are that are dog owners, and you spent time on the the canine unit. So 
Um, why don't we start there? Any any uh, any fresh and funny stories or anything you want to share? Doesn't have to be fresh and funny about your time uh, on the canine unit. Well, first of all, thanks for the introduction because that was really great. I'll apologize for my quick talking because uh, <laughs> everybody says that you talk really fast and I can talk really fast. That's just part of my uh, personality. Des can slow you down and edit. So. Des can slow yeah. me down and edit. That's yeah. great. Um, yeah, do- the dog squad was probably the back to my. Uh, my bio there you talked about like I was very fortunate in my career to have to in policing there's there's three different uh, facets of policing and three different ways you can go in policing well if you look at the bio I was fortunate to be able to do all of them uh, there's the, the the operational tactical portion which is basically in uniform and I was I was uh, like I said walking the downtown east side in uniform in patrol and then into dog squad, which is also tactical and, and operational. I was part of the ERT, emergency response team, dog handler. So a lot of situations there. And then I moved into the community relations. That's another facet. That's another direction, the community relations or uh, public relations side of policing, which was the school liaison side. And then I moved into the investigative side, which so those are the three facets, operational, community relations, public relations, and then investigative. So I was able to do all of them. So I was fortunate. But... As you said, my favorite place was the dog squad. Most exciting place. Your adrenaline goes from low to high super fast. And I do have some great stories. I mean, I've I had some unbelievable challenges in the dog squad and some good ones. But the people talk about people love their dogs. Mm-hmm. Well, the difference between being a dog handler and a pet, my dog did come home with me every day with my family. But my dog was also my partner. So I spent 40 hours a week with him plus in the car, attending to calls and patrols, and uh, also a family dogs. And my dog knew when to turn it on and turn it off, so which is pretty interesting. Is that right? Yeah. So he could. Uh, when I drove in, I lived out in the valley. When I drove into to, to Vancouver, as soon as I hit hit uh, Grandview and Boundary Road, the border of Boundary uh, Burnaby and Vancouver, my dog would start spinning in the back of the truck. He knew it, he's going to work. He's going to work. He's going to work. I'll I, be darned. Yeah. I know it's super interesting, right? I mean, you, we we all know. Um, and have friends that are police officers, and yeah. and, and we know you got to shut it off when you get home, right? Yeah. I mean, no, or at least hopefully, yeah. um, and you probably want to most days. But um, and this is kind of the the opposite. The dog turns it on when he when he gets yeah. to work, right? Yeah. And he knows when to turn it off. And and like police dogs in Vancouver, they're all our dogs are not. I never made my dog a guard dog, like a a protection dog per se, which I'll get to that protection. Was he a shepherd? Sorry to cut you off. German shepherd, yep. yep. All the dogs in Vancouver are German shepherds. They're the most, uh, they have the best propensity for being a a police dog. They have all the characteristics needed for a general patrol dog. But my dog could turn it on off, but he also, he was a command dog, so everything was on command. So you could come into my house and my dog wouldn't do anything to you. He'd be happy to see you. Oh, yeah. But if I gave him a command, different story. Is that right? Yeah. And in Vancouver, all, all our dogs were were bite and hold, not bark and hold, as per se as other different. Well, explaining that means bite and hold means when they did find the bad guy, bit and hold, right? And that's your portion of control. Whereas the other type of police training is is bark and hold. And there's a big argument now about bark and hold, bite and hold. But I'm a big fan of the of the bite and hold. Yeah, yeah, no, I I I, I mean, with the exception of my wife, I'm a <laughs> big fan of the <laughs> the bite and hold too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so my dog was trained. So off, off, off the job, um, he was great. So he was always a command dog. So, I mean, I can remember when my kids are playing in the cul-de-sac and I have my dog in a down position, um, you know, just watching over the kids and just kind of lazing. And then uh, all of a sudden, you know, I'd see a jogger would come by and my dog would look at me 
And, you know, we're looking for the command. Can I, Dad? Can I? <laughs> you know, and the answer right. would be, no, you stay, right? Right. Because he's just, that's the training they're on. There's right. a moving object. Should yeah. I go after that or no? Right. Right. It, were you involved in, in, in training or do they come to you with a certain amount of training? Great question, Des, because you're actually, people ask you how much training is into it. Uh, being a dog hound, I'm a tra- training is every single day. Yeah. It's every single hour. Just like I said there, I'm telling my dog, no, that's a training episode. Mm-hmm. You know, no, he's learning to stay. He's learning to get down. So I was involved in training. You get your dog as a pup and you train him all the way through and you're, you have him every day. Like you're, Every day is a training day with your dog, no matter what you're doing. Yeah, I would understand. But uh, when they come to you as a pup, do they come w- with some pre-training before oh. they get to you? Or are you the start of that training? You're, you're the start. And I got it. Got In it. Vancouver, you're you're the start. Your other departments is different. Some dogs come partially trained. Um, my dog came. Uh, I got him at fifth or eleven months, and um, my second dog, and it would, training was all done by me. Yeah, and and our head trainer. So it's just a combination. Nice. Yeah, and so the story I want to tell you about about my dog and training on master protection. Well, this is when I'm early in my career, and this is a good story because it it kind of gets you to learn about the bonding your dog has for you and how the dog is, um, you know, he's your best buddy. So, um, and, he's, and, he, and they're trained really well to be your best buddy and your protector. So one time early in my career, when I was not so smart as a dog handler, um, I was going for uh, a coffee. It was like three in the morning in the downtown area of Vancouver. And I'm having a coffee with another one of my sergeant. I'm sitting here and my dog's in the car. And uh, all of a sudden, some person comes into the, into the restaurant and says, hey, there's, the store's getting broken down just down the block. It's getting broken into. So, of course, we jump out of our seats, and we leave all our stuff there, with our paperwork, our notebooks, and stuff we had on the table, and we run down the block to see what's going on. And it, was a, it happened to be a, a break into one of the uh, uh, high-end uh, sporting goods stores. So, actually, they used a truck or a vehicle, and they drove through the front door, got a bunch of items and they had left. The audible alarm had gone off and they had left. You know, we broadcast everything and went looking for them for a bit. Came back to the restaurant later and I went to sit down at the table to pick up my notebook and some of the paperwork I was doing and I looked and I'm missing my flashlight. So I'm going, that's kind of weird. Where's my flashlight? It was sitting here on the table. Well, I remember when I walked out of the restaurant, these two kind of creepy guys were walking into the restaurant. They looked, they're kind of skittish looking guy and as a policeman, you kind of understand, you know, you're not, you're not, characterizing people all the time but you you can do a quick little bio of them and understand where they're where they're at and they just look a little bit skittish so i said to the waitress i said you know my flashlight's gone she was oh those two guys that came in they sat down at your table and i told them that that table was used so they told me then so then they left so obviously I, my brain starts clicking those guys took my flashlight so this is over at flashlight believe it or not this this story so i get i jump into my car i'm in the West end of Vancouver. It's a very dark area of Vancouver by UBC. I don't broadcast anything. I'm just going to find my flashlight. I'm trying to find these two guys. So I got my dog in the back. And in Vancouver, our dogs are in a compartment in the back, separated from the driver's seat. There's a compartment. It's a sliding door there, sliding glass door or a plexiglass door. And I usually have it open all the time when I'm with my dog. So if he needs to get out, he can jump out through my window, etc., etc. So I'm driving around looking for these two guys. I'm going through these dark alleys way back by UBC. And anybody that knows the UBC area, it's surrounded by big, deep willows and they're deep, dark uh, alleyways. And I look down this alleyway. I've, now, remember, I haven't broadcast or told anybody I'm doing this. I'm by myself with my dog. And I see down the alleyway, I see these two guys. 
And sure enough, it's the same two guys. So I cruise down the alley towards them, put my lights on, get out of my car, and I leave my window open, which is the smartest thing. I'll get back to that later. My driver's side window open. But I left the slider closed for my dog. I go talk to these guys. I can see something bulging from his backpack, and I'm trying to talk to the guy. And they're two French-Canadian guys from Quebec area. And I say, hey, where's my flashlight? And they're kind of, you know, not talking to me and stuff. And and, um, I reach over to the back, and I can feel the one guy. I can feel my flashlight in his backpack sitting there. So as I'm feeling the flashlight with, with my hand, the other guy, I'm not paying attention, grabs me from behind. And so I'm with these two guys in the back alley, and he's got a chokehold on me. And the other guy's trying to grab for my gun Oh, geez. in this alley. For gun retention, I'm holding with my one hand, trying to hold my hand so he doesn't get my gun. The other guy's choking me out. I don't know if you've ever blacked out before, but now all of a sudden, I can just feel at my whole, everything's starting to blacken in. And I'm starting, it's like it's closing in on you. I know I, I'm giving, it's a, it's a radio broadcast, but I'm giving hand signals. Everything's just kind of closing in, and I'm just about to start to black out and go out because he's got the chokehold on me, and he's reaching for my gun. And I'm in an alley, and nobody knows where I am. No, I have no backup, nothing. And as I'm just about to start going out, all of a sudden, I start coming clear again. And I'm going, what's going on? And I look, and I hear screaming, my dog had jumped out of the back, pushed through the plexiglass slider, out the window, and had I grabbed onto the back of the guy's leg, biting on the back of that guy's leg that was choking me out. Um, and so then my dog took care of him. He released his grip. That's why I was able to come back to again. Still had my hand on my gun, and the other guy's punching me, and I start fighting with him. I finally get him under control, handcuff him, put him on the ground, my dog's still chewing the other guy, oh. which was, I, I was pretty happy about that. Um, <laughs> screaming, some lights, porch lights and stuff are starting to go on in the area now. Um, I don't know where I am. I have no, I didn't say where I was. I have no backup, nothing. Anyways, my dog uh, basically saved my life. He, uh, uh, I was able to get him under control, find out where I am, look at a, find a license plate in the backyard of one of these guys' house, you know, broadcast that plate, this is where I am, I need cover. Anyways, cover came. The situation was great. I, my dog saved my life. Got him, my dog off him. Found out both these guys were parolees. Breached their parole, and they were going to be going back to prison for eight to ten years. Anyway, so I had no doubt in my mind that they would have got my gun, yeah. killed me, and uh, if it wasn't for my dog, I, I wouldn't right. be here. Wow. It's quite the story. It yeah, is. So that's, a, that's an intense story. There's funny yeah. stories, but that was an intense story because that's the relationship you have with your dog. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's your buddy, your savior. Yeah. So he, he got through the sliding door, you're yeah, saying? he popped. Yeah. Th- he pushed. He must have been going crazy. He yeah. pushed through the slider, right, to get out. I pushed it off its trackings to get out, to jump out my driver's side window, like I left that window open, out the car, and attack and to the, on, and attached to the guy's back of his leg that was choking me out. Wow. Beautiful. That's amazing. Yeah. What's the name of that, uh, that lo- the, the last dog that you had there? That was, his name was Justice. I had two dogs. Justice. My first dog was Judge, and then my second was Justice. <laughs> That's so great. Did you, did you get to name them? Or? The first dog, I didn't get to name. I took him over after a handler had left. So I was one of the first guys in the Vancouver Police Department that took over a dog from an existing handler that left the squad early. Right. And so uh, I took over that dog, and then he worked for about a year and a half, two years with me, and then he went to Nelson PC and worked up there. And terrorized the city of Nelson, the poor little city of Nelson. Yeah. And then I, <laughs> then I trained my next dog, uh, uh, Justice, and I did get to I did get to uh, name him. 
Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. And how long were you with this uh, the Savior dog? And um, what happens at the end? I mean, I assume they go okay. into retirement. Yes. And yeah. So I was with a decent I, Vancouver pension. And yeah, no pension. No pension. <laughs> uh, I'm the only one with a pension dog. Actually, the the department's done really well with with uh, dog handlers. They actually there is a there is a now there's a um, an insurance policy they get for the dog. So you know when your dog's being beaten up and driving crazy throughout the city and through all these calls for all the nights, and he's now uh, in his latter part of his years of his life and he's and, and injuries and stuff take place you know their hips and their mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. and so they uh, they do have an insurance plan now you have an option to purchase or the department purchases and that takes care of their dogs when they retire uh-huh. so i had that dog for that dog the savior dog justice for um for about nine years and then uh he was getting too old to do the, the job and then uh retired came became a family pet until eventually he passed away your family pet yes yeah family. fantastic so uh, as a dog handler, next question yeah and as a dog handler whenever a dog handler leaves a dog squad in vancouver you can you have the the dog usually goes with the handler you know so they, they have the, dog, the the city of course signs off on them mm-hmm. but then the dog just becomes your family pet yeah yeah that's amazing that's a great story and i'm sure when when justice you know finally really retired it must have been a very Tragic sad oh, day was, for you guys tough. and your family. I mean, yeah. you know that that it was tough. Dog saved your life. Yeah, God's sakes. Oh yeah, yeah. So how old was Justice when when he, he retired? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or passed away? I mean, passed away. I think he was thirteen. Okay, so yeah. de- decent long life for a yeah. big dog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. D- d- decent life. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he went downhill really fast after he retired. Right. Um, I mean, they're just so used to that adrenaline. They're going, happens going, to going. dogs and humans, yes. right? Yeah, and well, then, except for us guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't say that. Never look better. Well, awesome story. I mean, geez, that's, uh, I can't imagine the, uh, the, the relief you had being in the situation you were in. Oh, and it was all my fault. I mean, I, sh- I, you know, so many mistakes made as a constable Yeah. You know, and you wonder, and we're going to probably talk about, you know, the police shootings and, and injuries and stuff. And a lot of it, you know, it's, it's, it's mistakes that, you know, in hindsight I could have avoided. Yeah, yeah. I could have, uh, you know, I should have radio broadcast where my location was, what I was doing. Where I was when I stopped those guys, I should have maybe waited for some backup before I approached. Yeah. All these different things I did as a young, you know, aggressive, yeah. uh, you know, keen yeah. constable where your emotions get the best of you when I should have just waited for all that stuff. Not all of us are Batman. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Although, <laughs> um, hey, I couldn't help but, uh, but notice when Des was reading your resume, the two things that stuck out, to, well, there was a number of things that stuck out to me, but two in particular, witness protection, and then he followed it with non-suspicious deaths. So I, I, I need you to talk about one or both of those, but I'm, I'm, super, I'm super keen to hear about witness protection. And the reason is, I actually thought it was a, a, a construct of Hollywood. I didn't actually think that there was a true witness protection program. Oh yes, in Vancouver. So in Vancouver, in the, I, I was under the umbrella of the major crime section. So in the major crime section, there's your your homicide, um, your robbery, assault, and then uh, the squads, and then the the, the three uh, other uh, sections under that umbrella was the witness protection, uh, missing persons, and it's called coroner liaison detective or, or sudden death investigate non-suspicious sudden death investigations so and and the witness protection portion of that yeah it's it's not like hollywood but you know it does exist and it's you know and there are many times where we've had witnesses that we displace throughout canada um you know and even the states where there are witnesses to a, a horrific crime or a murder or something that their safety's in jeopardy and you know that we have to uh uh 
put them somewhere else in Canada. It's not safe for them to be here. And 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 when that happens, and I know you can't share any particulars, but when that happens, what is and and how is success defined? Like if they actually make it to trial and and you know testify, and I guess the other way of looking at it is, you know, failure would be they're they're found and and killed. I, I just does that ever happen? In my career, none of that happened. I mean, um, and. Almost all the situations, when they go into the witness protection program, they sign off to the witness protection program. So there's certain guidelines that they have to do because we're putting them up, you know, that there is a cost to that. We're putting them up somewhere else and they're setting a new life. So, but they have to follow certain protocols and guidelines that they sign off on to do that. So if they breach those or, or don't, then they're out of the program. So it's up to them to follow what they're supposed to do, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and they're simple tasks, but they just, I mean, they can't, I, I mean, they're getting new identities and they're placed in different areas of, of uh, that, that they can't go out and try to reach back to their old areas. So it, it, you know, right. And as far as, uh, convictions and as far as, uh, are they seen all the way through? I mean, I, I know several ones that we've placed elsewhere and then come back to court and, and, and they've given the testimony in court and their witness eye count of the scenario and then back to where they were again. Wow. And is it permanent? Are they in witness, like are they under the, I guess the, the watchful eye of law enforcement for like their lives or is it, you know, a, a set period of time? No, yes and no. They're, I mean, they are under the watchful. They can always reach out. They, they have a contact. They can do that. But usually they, they're just gone to different areas with different lives, different occupations, different... Uh, we set them up and then uh, they take them there. But if any, anything ever happens, I mean, they can always reach back and, uh, we'll, yeah. and we'll deal with it. So, so funding for these folks for, for the rest of their lives, is, is there well, consistent funding? Well, the funding is for the setup and whatnot um, and for the, for the placement. But after that, then they're really on their own for you know, their new careers or whatever they're doing. Right. Um, so the, the, you're not in the, we're not on the, on the tap for everything. Right. Uh, and the tap is very minimal too. I mean, we're not sending people down to the Bahamas living in a beautiful resort home. No. It's not a lottery. No, because I might be taking that myself, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. I was thinking, of, how do I get in on this? Yes. Um, so you don't set them up in Point Grey and send their kids to no. you know, private school? and. No, unfortunately, that's, that's only in the movies, right? Yeah, well, there you go. That was my construct. I, I think I've... Uh, I've always sort of fantasized that if something happened, I'm going to go into witness protection no. and, you know, no. reset myself. No, trust me, some of the places they're going are, aren't, aren't the nicest places to be going. Yeah, right. Okay. Do they have any control or say over where they're being placed? Or? It, it all depends on each situation. It does. Okay. You know, like family members, uh, contacts, you know, and, and relevance to, to, to who they are and what they've been through in their life. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, super interesting. Yeah. Um, do you have a question? I, I, I felt like I was going to cut you off there. No, no. I, you know, I just wanted to talk about uh, some of the things we do want to get to with you. And I mean, obviously, you know, the uh, you know walking the beat as as long as you did in in downtown Vancouver and and, and much of the east side. And of course, over the years, uh, you know, I remember, uh, you know, in in the business that I was in, I constantly uh, in Vancouver. So I remember from call it uh, 1985 on. I've I've watched the um, I've watched the area, uh, which was always in in some kind of distress. But I I, I must say the you know the, the parts of downtown Vancouver are starting to get even more unrecognizable year after year. Most definitely. Yeah. What can you can you 
offer a little bit of uh, sort of a, a timeline span over the time you spent in, in downtown and east side of Vancouver, what you've seen in, in your experiences? Well, yeah, it's, it's totally changed. I mean, in 19, and it all changes, I think it's because of the, the types of drugs that have changed uh, over the years that are predominant in that downtown east side. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I first started, like I said, in 85, when I was, you know, the downtown east side area, um, it was, um, your drug, your drugs were different then and the people were different. Um, I what mean, were the drugs of the day, uh, let's say, in, in 85 on, on the street there? Well, I mean, heroin was still prevalent. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Tawin and Ritalin, which was a combination of two drugs that were, the TNRs they were called, um, that was sort of the cheap heroin um, uh, uh, drug of the time, a mixture of those. Mm-hmm. Um, cocaine was getting there, getting big then. Um, you still had your marijuana and stuff all the time and hash. I mean, you had your different areas of Vancouver, you know, the uh, Pigeon Square area, the uh, Victory Park was your soft drug users, and then the downtown east side, the 100 East Hastings, uh, 100 West Hastings, and, and uh, Unit West Hastings, all that area on there was your was your was more of your hardcore drug areas. Right. And there was more bars there, too. Mm-hmm. Like there, there, I mean, all those bars, are, a lot of those bars are gone now. I mean, there was the, the Sunrise Hotel, there was the Sunrise Bar, there was, there was the Smiling Buddha uh, Cabaret, there was much more bars and prevalence of, of, of also alcohol, problems with alcohol nature. You have your miners coming in there, your loggers coming in. It was a more tougher crowd and a different crowd. It's totally changed to now. Once crystal meth came into the, into the program, um, you just seen how the, just, just the clientele has totally changed. Right. Yeah. And, and about what era does, does crystal meth make an appearance? I, I, I think in the, I mean, my memory's a little bit off, but I think in the, in the, um, See, in, in, in 93, I was in the dog squad, and then I ended in 2004. And around that area then, it, it started getting more prevalent, I'd say, in the, in the early 2000s. Right. Um, that it, uh, before that, it wasn't as prevalent. And that was a part of the immigration issues. And then, of course, then we had the, the, um, the, uh, the, the Riverview closing. And so then you'd have the, um, uh, the mentally challenged people, the people that had um, uh, mental health issues that were just basically when they closed Riverview, uh, it just they all just got put and displaced down to the, into the SROs, a single room occupancy, um, mm-hmm. throughout the downtown east side. Mm-hmm. So then they became dual diagnosed. You'd have people that were you know suffering from mental challenges and then also addicted to drugs. So mm-hmm. it, it became that's when it started becoming a mess down there. Right, and and you you touched on you know because it's clear to me when when you're in these cities and it's not just Vancouver. I mean, we're seeing it uh, you know here in Kelowna and, and up in Vernon and uh, you know I was just saying while we were off air that uh, you know we're from uh, we're from Alberta, so getting back to Edmonton and what have you uh, lately. Just in the three years that I've been away from Edmonton, living there, uh, the downtown Edmonton is is completely changed. Distressed situations in downtown Edmonton that that are very visible and more frequent. Uh, so I think all cities are are suffering from this. W- would would you say? Well, oh, def- most definitely. I think it's. I mean, even Kelowna here. I, I had two. Uh, Back then, when I was a sergeant in the downtown east side in the BET squad, um, I had two two. I think it was a sergeant and a staff sergeant from Kelowna, RCMP came up to to do a walk along and ride along with me to 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 witness what what's going on in Vancouver and 
and some of the policies and changes they've done in Vancouver. And about what year was that when you had that guest ride with you? That would be would have been two thousand and four. Okay, and uh, two thousand four, two thousand five, and it was not great. I mean, we had, that's when the Insight, uh, that the safe injection site first opened up in Vancouver. So they wanted to get a good look at that and 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 when and how that was working, how effective or ineffective that was. Well, apparently they didn't learn any lessons if you're looking at Kelowna today, right? I mean, all you got to do is drive down or ride your bike down Wendell Street and there's, what, what a last count, 200 tents there now and, and, and growing. Um, and I, as I understand it from a friend who work, works in the downtown, you know, Kelowna area, it, it's, it's getting worse every sort of week. It, yeah. You know, it's, it's not getting better. So clearly the folks who came to visit you back in the early 2000s didn't, didn't learn anything, or if they did learn anything, they didn't apply it to the Kelowna situation. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the one thing that that's also, you know, sort of been reported, Kirk, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, that, you know, although not all homeless are, you know, criminals or have criminal intent, um, there certainly is a correlation, and it seems to be increasing, particularly in the in in the Okanagan Valley. Any any thoughts on on that? First of all, am I am I right to to you know to say it that way? And any thoughts as it relates to you know just just the homeless and and sort of criminal element in in our towns? Well, I think a lot of it stems from from mental health issues. Mental health issues, like I said, the dual diagnose. It's it's both. They they have mental health issues and struggling with mental health issues and on top of that now uh, they have drug addictions so mm-hmm. you got to support that drug addiction how do they support that drug addiction you know it's expensive so how are they going to support that well i couldn't support a drug addiction on my pension if i was drug addicted to some of some of the likelihood of some of these people in the homeless how are they supporting that well they're, unfortunately they're they're criminals right. they're, they're breaking the law and and doing crime and and that's what i was leading to um when i was talking about all these these different cities and it's it's getting uh what i what i was trying to get to is it's clear to me that many of the homeless uh and i mean well over 50% seem to me have have mental health issue, issues correct right and so li- leading to what you just said Stu, being homeless doesn't mean all of these things uh you know uh, it could be just people out of their luck and and so forth but uh, it's clear to me in, when you interface with, with these people, uh, you know, that are out there in, in unfortunate situations, they seem to be in a mental health stress situation. So how do you as police officers interface? What are the experiences that you've been, been finding in, in, in interfacing with these people? Well, I, I think the problem, I mean, it's, it's, it's a culture problem, but it's also a problem within our government, our policies, and the, and the law. I mean, back to the drug, homeless drug addiction. I mean, there's there's two different theories on, on, on like I was talking about insight, you know, the safe injection site that they can go to. So there's two different uh, ways, that the two different arguments, you know, is there's the harm reduction model uh, for, for drug issues, and then there's the preventative treatment model. Well, I am, I think our, our left-wing governments are really strong believers in this harm reduction model, you know, and harm reduction is a place like Insight where they're a safe injection site where they, you know, right now in Vancouver, they're supplying heroin to people, you know, mm-hmm. safe heroin. And I don't think that's the answer. I mean, there's, I, I'm not, I'm not for the harm reduction from a law enforcement, there's not many law enforcement officers that will agree with the harm reduction model um, that they're actually on the boots on the ground watching this. I just don't think it works. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, if you you're, you're giving drugs out to people, creating more addicts for three few drugs, whereas the harm reduction, yes, it will save lives for, you know, they're they're safely injecting, you know. But that, if you look at that safe injection site, it's not used a lot. You know, I I challenge people to to watch how many people actually go in there to the safe injection site. When I'm, during my time in Vancouver, I'd see the safe injection site. I'd see very few people going in, but I walked down the south lane and of the hundred East Hastings, and I could find ten people shooting up. Mm-hmm. You know, but the injection site they weren't. And so, and why why would that be, Kirk? In your opinion, is well, that you know if, if you anonymity t- or great great response anonymity? I mean, if you look at some of these people, they don't want to be. It's the same with the homeless. They don't want to be in these little units under rules and directions. Like I said, that's the mental health is part of it. They want to shoot out, shoot up, and take their drugs on their own on their own accord and when they want to. They want to be logging into a safe injection site and having somebody watch over them shoot right. their drugs. That's just not part of their culture. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm one of these strong proponents against the harm reduction. I think prevention and treatment is the only way to go. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, left-wing governments and policies. Uh, do, do you think ultimately that's why we're in the, in the intensity that we are in, on the streets? Without a doubt. I mean, they're making it softer for criminals. They're making it softer for the drug users. What has Vancouver done now? They, it's, I think it's a certain amount of hard drugs now, like a certain amount of cocaine, a certain amount of heroin. It's okay. You're yeah. not going to get charged for possession. Decriminalizing, yeah. Decrim- yeah. The decriminalizing. In possession of, yeah. yeah. Possession of. I mean, I can remember back in my day when when possession was a charge, you know? Right. And, and now it's not. Now, I understand the arguments on on, on their side. However, I, I just don't agree with them. Whenever you come from a treatment program or, or harm reduction, whatever you're doing, they, they, they put them in the, the drug capital of Vancouver down in the, in the, in the downtown east side. All these, right. That's where they're all living there. There's no place else for them to go, but they put them there. It's like putting an alcoholic and surrounding them by 500 liquor stores. Yeah. yeah sure. Stay, abstinence from alcohol. Do it. Yep. Yeah. But how hard is it when it's right there? Yeah. yeah, you know, and I, I know, you know, the way Stu and I discuss many issues, and one one of the things that it seems consistent with the liberal mindset, and and you're you're touching on it. If you, if everything is light, the law enforcement is light, uh, the rules, uh, laws, like you know, these policy changes to, to laws on possession, the leniency has got us to the point where all of these numbers, and of course, the one number at the very end, which is ODs, like, you know, people are dying in, in, in great numbers in downtown Vancouver, bigger numbers than we've ever seen. All of this policy has led to where we are today, and all those metrics are worse today than they were, you know, a decade and two decades ago. Am I right? 100% correct. And that's the, I mean, I, I, I can't remember, but there was a, uh, what's the name of the group? It was Sergeant Toby Hinton and Al Arsenal. Um, it was like a TV show slash, they were, I can't remember. This is the thin, it wasn't the thin blue line, but it was something to that effect. And I can't remember what it was, but it was, they would broadcast and talk about the issues um, of the downtown east side and how it's changed and it has changed. They were big into the prevention and treatment. And I remember a long time ago going to a, some sort of seminar on harm reduction versus abstinence, prevention, and treatment and the harm reduction model versus that. And I think it was in, I'm not sure, like, it was Austria or Switzerland where they, you know, did a sample on harm reduction, and they provided. They had 4,400 heroin users at the time in that area, so they provided free heroin to them. That was part of their harm reduction. We're going to give free heroin out. Well, in two years, they went from 4,400 
addicted heroin users to 20,000 and the program shut down. So, I mean, does that make sense? Most of our listeners are, you know, (laughs) smart people. And and it seems absolutely counterintuitive to me that if you give somebody heroin, it's going to somehow solve the problem. And I get it's harm reduction, I, uh, but, but it's insane. And, and I had a conversation, Des and I don't profess to be, you know, psychologists or therapists, but I, I, uh, you know, we, we just want to present the issues and have a, a healthy conversation and debate about it. But I did have a conversation with a psychologist a few, uh, a few weeks ago, and it was around this whole notion of marijuana. And we were talking about the homeless population and, you know, there, there seems to be a, a, a general lethargy you know around the country these days not not just in the homeless but generally speaking and this psychologist was saying that that she believed it was a function of of the legalization of marijuana and the fact that it's so accessible and that it is whether you want to believe it or not a gateway drug and you know the the, the proliferation of of marijuana use and we're going to alienate des our our friends and family that that you know abide periodically with with cannabis but I, but i don't think you can you can argue the fact that you know there has to be a correlation or a relationship between the legalization of marijuana and what we're seeing, you know, out there today. Would would you agree? And, and Des Kirk, I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, it, it definitely is a gateway drug, and people forget that that it is a gateway drug. It's an introduction, right? And you, you start off at the soft drug level, and then ask any hard drug user, did they start off with marijuana? Your answers are probably going to be yes. Mm-hmm. You know, that was their number one you know, stepping over. You know? Yeah. And, and I get that, you know, not everybody who, you know, takes a sip of wine ultimately becomes an alcoholic and not everybody that takes a toke of, of marijuana ultimately becomes addicted or advances to heroin or crystal meth or, you know, oxy. But there is... There's a correlation. There, there sure. is a correlation, mm-hmm. right? So, um, yeah, and I, I think we're seeing it today. And again, this this individual that I spoke to thought, you know, very, very firmly that 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 relationship is is undeniable and it's also almost at least at this stage with the government that we have irreversible. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Yes, with this government we have. Was that professional uh did talk about any data that supported well, that? Not necessarily, only, you know, it was anecdotal des and and in their belief and what they're seeing, they just believe there's a there's a correlation. Right. Right. Seeing in, in maybe their practice, seeing in their practice, seeing with the homeless population right. and, and it's 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 growth. People are getting high and hanging out and they're not particularly interested in, you know, getting to work. And, and again, they, I know we're going to get beat up on this. So you know, they, they also said there there's and I'd love to hear your thoughts, Kirk, that there are, you know, are, are kind of three kinds of, of homeless. There's, you know, the mental health and the addicted, of course, you know, and sometimes they're, they're related and sometimes they're, they're not. There is just the anti-authority sort of, you know, I can't be pinned down and I want to live on my own and do my own thing um, group. And then there's, there, there's the down and out. They, they've just, you know, fallen on hard luck and, and it's a tough economy and inflation rates are crazy and they've lost their home and, and they're, they're actually homeless, but they're part of a working homeless population. And the individual said, "Not I've, Des, I haven't checked this. I haven't done any research, but but they were saying that in their experience, those are sort of the three pockets of of homeless. The sad part is the one that's growing the fastest is the first one that I identified. Sort of the mental health, ultimately, you know, uh, drug related. Um, sometimes, Kirk, to your point, they're they're both, unfortunately, yeah. and one fuels the other, of course." Mm-hmm. Yes, like I said, the dual diagnosis are probably the, is, is our worst our worst uh, uh, culprit of the homeless. Yeah. And you know, and you know, we we like to 
kick the left wing, you know, liberal type uh, mindset. We like to kick them every now and again. And I really do believe where we are in society today is related to the fact that, you know, if we look at how we went to elementary school in, in you know, the, the age and era that we, we were in, in in elementary school, and then you, you, you contrast that with what's happening today and what we're hearing about happening in schools. And basically, without getting into anything long-winded, there was a sense of personal responsibility to society when we were in, in elementary school, and it was practiced from the teacher. There was a certain demand for, for personal responsibility. And I think the absolute 180-degree opposite is happening and being practiced in, in today. There's, there's always... Absolutely. Right? There's, and so I think when you start uh, developing uh, young people outside, well outside of personal responsibility, uh, and that it's always somebody else's... Uh, fault and and the blame is always quickly moved somewhere else and and that somewhere else is absolutely faceless today right but what what is intact is that we have a lack of personal responsibility and if you do if you sort of timeline that out from children and into er, you know early adulthood and what have you you can see how people fall and then, of course, you have policy changes and law changes that, like we've just discussed with, you know, you're now allowed to have seriously hard drug possessions, a certain uh, quantity, and, and, and then, of course, safe injection sites. And everything is promoting almost the, the substance use uh, and almost nothing on actually getting people to be clean and, and make choices, personal responsibility choices, to say, I need to remedy this which in fact will remedy my life. It's, that's why prevention and treatment is my... Right. And abstinence, prevent, abstinence, prevention, and treatment is the way to go. If you talk to any of these recovered drug addicts, they will tell you, you know, that that's the way to go. You know, they, I haven't found one person that of all the people I've spoken to over the years, you know, recovering drug addict will say, no, 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 harm reduction is the best way. Giving them more drugs is the best way. No. Well, that doesn't get them to be a non-user. This no. Is what my, my point yes, is. Yes, it doesn't. We, we have to, at some point, employ methods and techniques to get people to be non-users yeah. and cleaned up. Not accommodate their, exactly. you know, or yeah. their, their, their problem, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because it is a problem, and that's... You know, you can call it the way you want, but it is. You being in law enforcement for as long as you have and talking about decay that we're we're seeing over the last few decades to where we are today. And, you know, I, I think we are, we're all in agreement here and we're, we're willing to, uh, you know, further argue that, you know, it's, li- it's very, very liberal policy, accommodating policy that has got us here. Which leads me to think, how do you get a, a young person to to want to be in law enforcement considering, and, you know, we really haven't talked about some of the things that have, ha- you know, happened right here in, in, in law enforcement here in Canada, which are absolute tragedies, like the deaths in, in Edmonton here just uh, earlier this spring. Can you comment on, on how do we get young people to say, I want to be in law, law enforcement, given what we've talked about, but not only that, there's a an anti-police environment out there with some, not all, but some. You know, the defund and what have you. 
uh, actually, you know, on a joking side, I'd like to actually defund the mind police, but <laughs> but you know where I'm going with this. Defund, right? defund CBC. Yeah. Um, but you know what I'm saying? How do we rec- recruit young people, given everything we've talked about today, and say, I want to be a police officer? Well, that's definitely a challenge for recruitment nowadays. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, who really wants to be a police officer right now? I mean, that, that is, I, I look at today's, the way it's, it is today, especially in American politics, it's, I think it's even worse. But you, you see how the defund police today, I think is just, it's ludicrous. It's, it's actually stupidity defund the police, you're just going to create more criminals and more crime. It, it makes absolutely no sense to defund the police. You need to fund the police. You know, a lot of the issues are, are training issues. You know, mm-hmm. Like the, the shortcomings are, are usually training issues? They, they, they tend to be training issues. Like even some of the deaths, uh, the unfortunate uh, deaths that we've had in policing, could they have been prevented? Anybody can say things afterwards. But at the time, maybe this step could have been done. Maybe this step could have been done. I'm not sure. But training is... A, is is the the biggest aspect? So because we have a diverse community now, diverse uh, living conditions, diverse communities and cultures. So the training itself needs to be uh, improved. So you need to fund the police more so they get this better training mm-hmm. to, to deal with certain situations, not defund them. Defunding is just going to cause more issues. I mean, look what's happened in San Francisco down the states and and throughout some of the these democratic uh, yeah. cities, right? You know, yeah. so. Even Vancouver, Vancouver's very left-wing. However, this last mayor that they just got, um, I think he's going to be. A, it's going to be some big changes there. Yeah, and it seems like the pendulum really swung. You know, from yes. from who they've elected in past uh, mayoral candidates, right? Yep. And 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 the new fella in now is is quite a bit different. Yeah, and I think he's he's very pro-police, and he wants right. you know, and yeah, I, I, defunding the police is definitely not the answer. And I think it's hilarious that people think that that is the answer, and that we're going to send in. When I, when I was working there, if we went to <clears throat> excuse me, if we went to a uh, a mental health arrest for, for for anybody, a social worker always attended with us. The social worker wouldn't go in by themselves to make that arrest or make that. You know, even when we're doing when we're as police back then, we we're doing check well beings of people. You know that were maybe suffering from mental health issues and complaints. You would never a social worker would never attend without the police. So if you wanted to fund the police and take that facet away, and just the social worker attending. You know, I think you're into a whole different ballgame of, mm-hmm. of uh, safety and issues. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's such a complex issue. I mean, to your point, Kirk, about, you know, mental health again. I was looking at a, a article published by Global that of, you know, in the last less than two years, you know, nine police officers have lost their life in the line of duty. Um, six of those nine were, were ambushed. Two were stabbed, including the, the young lady in Burnaby. Um, and one was was an unrelated accident. But you wonder how many of those, particularly the six of, of the nine that I just quoted that were ambushed, you know, could be with us today if they took precautions going into these situations. But then I ask myself, had they taken precautions, gone in, you know, firearms drawn or guns drawn, and, you know, blew the, blew the young guy away before he had a chance to shoot them, you know, would they be supported by their police force and by the community in those situations? And I rather suspect they wouldn't, right? That they would be viewed as, you know, too aggressive, uh, breaking protocol. You, you see it so often, right? That, 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 you know, defense for our first-line responders and support is really lacking, in my opinion. Kirk, do you have a thought? or Yeah, I think that, and I think that mindset is... is uh, um, 
for that lack of support is, is supported by some of these left wing media outlets that are that, that you know, they seem to dramatize and uh, you know yeah. they don't they don't seem to want to support the police they want to look to criticize rather than support yeah. you know Constantly. Yeah. that was one of their children that were a police officer and doing that would you want your child to go in there as uh, yeah. you know without his gun drawn or you want him to to take every you don't join the police force to get killed no, you know, no. You join to protect people, and people forget that. And some of these people, who's the, you know, people never call the police to say, you know, you're having a party and a great time. Hey, we're having a great time. Come on over, enjoy the party with us. They only call the police when I hate to say it, shit hits the fan. When yeah. they can't handle it, that's when they call the police. It gets so, out of hand. Yeah, and so all the time that they're they're saying, and everybody can be a back seat quarterback and talk about it afterwards. You know, I'm not in the position to talk to say, you know, could those deaths be avoided. You know, I'm the last person to say that because every situation is fluid and dynamic, so you just don't know. But 100% correct on the on the the attitude nowadays and the precautions that police have to take is putting themselves in jeopardy yeah. when they go into these calls. Now, because you know they're all, with video and stuff out, they can they can show the police drawing their guns, and of course that'll show why do they have the guns drawn, why do they have this, and all the protocols are put in into place, but they're constantly challenged and ridiculed by the public. And that that's why I ask, you know, in, in today's day and age with the scrutiny, I mean, they're all over the internet you see little uh, clips of uh, either policemen's uh, body camera footage or, you know, a bystander. And, and you think, and quite often the response after some kind of video is uh, uh, the police was using too much force or could have handled things better. I think putting yourself, like you said, in, in, in the other shoes is that policeman wants to go home to his family and, and, and be alive at the end of the shift. And in today's world, you don't know who you're going to encounter. And what kind of, like we've talked about, what kind of uh, mental illnesses that, that there might be there, you know, depth of violence, and, and so you don't know, yeah, right? You know, police officers are going to make mistakes. You know, we're, we're all humans, and especially when you've got a situation like you even described when, when you got attacked. This could end your life, uh, and you want to you get home to uh, your family, and all the training might go out. I don't know. Maybe all that training goes out the window, and it, it is uh, pure survival after that. Yeah, and, right? they, and the public doesn't see this, the police side and the issues that, and the stuff that they go through. Um, I'll give you a really good example. Um, during this defund the police uh, period that was really when it was really high in the media and, and really prevalent, you couldn't get on a, uh, a TV station that didn't talk about that, mm-hmm. you know, or somebody talking about how they need to fund the police. Well, a certain officer that I know um, went to probably one of the worst police calls that people don't talk about that a policeman can go to, a sudden infant death. So they went to Children's Hospital. They had to go there because the mother and father, their baby passed away at night. So the social workers are there, the doctors are there, and the police officer has to attend and has to actually take the baby from the mother's arms. Probably one of the worst calls you've ever have to go to. You're actually forcibly taking the baby from the mother's arm who's crying fanatically and upset, and you're forced to do that. So I'm going to get a little emotional here, but they, the police officer is actually crying when they're taking that baby from the mother. They do that. They have to take the baby. They get gets put into care and into and you know and the proceedings for the sudden infant death are taken care of with the bo- with the baby's body, and the police officer goes out to their car, a big piece of paper, plastered on their front 
uh, windshield of their car saying, you effing pig, I hope you die, defund the police. Right. Uh, just after they just did that terrible task. Mm-hmm. You know, they have no idea what this officer just went through, right? That's, that's pretty traumatic. Yeah. You know, you, who in this world would want to do that? You know, and then come out and have to deal with that sign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, that, that, that's a, like a horrible, tragic story. And to your point, Kirk, I mean, I, I don't think the average person ever even considers that element or that oh. type of policing when they're thinking about first responders. And the other thing is that it's because mainstream media never reports it, never talks about it. Never talk about it. And, and, yeah. And did you cut you off just for a second? No, go ahead. And it's, and it's next to people don't forget that there's other facets of policing. It's not just the gun drawn and the criminal. There's the next to kin notification. Who wants to sit in the living room to tell the family that their daughter or son just passed away uh, in a motorcycle accident? Who wants to sit there, uh, has to go into a house where somebody's hanging in the closet because they just committed suicide? Who does that job? That's police's work. People don't understand that facet, but they can sure broadcast and talk about defunding the police in other areas, but they don't want to talk about those areas that nobody wants to do that job. I didn't sign up to do that job. I know it's task of the job, but I didn't want to do those. You don't want to walk into rooms with dead people. You don't want to do that. It's not, it's not a fun part well, you, of You'd hope not. Yes. Right? Yeah. Well, and, and, and Desi asked a question about recruiting, and I, I, I want to get back to it because I, I was pulling some stats off, um, you know, StatsCan for prevailing wages for, you know, police officers in the country, it actually shocked me that on the low end, it's it's around $28, $29 an hour, the entry level, of course, just coming in. It only goes up to, on average in Canada, about 58 bucks an hour. Now, I know there's overtime and, and other things that add into that, but, you know, you do the math and, and you know, you, you've kind of got an entry level constable coming in at, you know, 65, 70,000 a year. Does that sound about right, Kirk? I think it's a little bit higher in Vancouver now. It's a little bit higher, but and then I had, um, you know, after four steps or whatever they call it, you're you're somewhere around 105, 110 a year. Yeah, that's right. That's what that's what I'm thinking of. Is that right? Yeah, but but take the examples that that you just gave for a first responder and what they have to deal with, not just daily, but from a you know a PTSD standpoint. And then I look at the industry I'm in, still you know play a role in, which is healthcare and medical device. You know, we have sales reps out there coming in entry level, making eighty-five thousand a year, um, with a car and benefits and national sales meetings and travel and meals and per diems and everything else. And I don't know, I don't know a, a farmer rep yet that suffers PTSD, at least not from anything that traumatic. Do you know what I mean? Like it just, it doesn't seem like a fair wage for what they do. No, and I think recruitment is the biggest challenge right now that all these police forces are going to be uh, finding out. I mean, you have that Surrey police. Uh, scenario that's going on right now with with them or the RCMP, and that's going to be a challenge right. to fulfill that. I mean, across Canada, the wages aren't great. I mean, there is security, you know, and the pension's good, mm-hmm. right? but you pay into the pension. And you got to make it to right. the pension. You got to make it to the pension. You know, yeah. fortunately, you know, I did, and, and you get that way. But yeah, it's a challenge because who wants to do a job that, so it takes a certain type of person to, to do that job. So it intrigues a certain person, a certain person's characteristics, a certain person's demeanor that wants to do the job. And yes, you're going to get bad apples in every in every scenario. You're going to get poor police officers just like you can get poor postmen, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But but you but it takes a certain person and I think that's a huge challenge and that's why they're now they never did this when I first started going on uh, these recruitment programming where they're traveling and trying to recruit people from all across provinces say for Vancouver, but it is a challenge, and who wants to do it? It just takes that certain person that wants to do that job. Mm. What are they doing to get recruitment up? 
well, I think they're they're showing some of the positives. Like, you know, there are it isn't always just you know mundane and and a patrol officer. There's different. Vancouver, for example, has the opportunity for so much different variety within the department, different sections. You can be a, you can go into the mounted squad. You can go into, like I said, school liaison. You can go into special investigations. You can go into so many different, there's so many different avenues um, that you can diverse and go into right. rather than just being a patrol officer, just res- just a first responder. So I think that's an attraction. So they do their time in, in patrol, but then they can go to these other facets and other different departments, sections right. within the department that makes it that may be more interesting or challenging to them. A little more attractive. A little more attractive. Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe you're not in the public's eye all the time. Right. But I think initially, you know, it's, it is a challenge. So I think one of them is their, their security aspect they talk about. They talk about the pension. They talk about the, their shifting models. There are some positives that they've really improved on that may help people recruitment. But I still think that today's society and the media is making it more challenging with the way they're they're promoting policing or talking about policing as not a really a great place to be. Well, it's one of the reasons why you know we we wanted to uh, in, invite you on here because we've we've talked at length. Why would anyone want to be a police officer in today's environment? And I'm talking about the environment that we see on the streets and the, the, the decay there, and of course the uh, the decay in some of the population that uh, are somewhat anti-police, uh, which we've all agreed here is just. Like it's, it's absolute stupidity. I mean, you never want a policeman around until you need one. One thing I wanted to talk to you about, there's a balance with, with policing. For example, a few years back, I was, uh, I was traveling in the vehicle. I was making a left-hand turn, and I noticed a, a plainclothes guy on, on the opposite corner. And uh, I realized, because I was stopped in the left turn at, for, for one sequence of the light, and I couldn't figure out what he was doing over there. But you know what he was? He was a plainclothes cop, and he was watching for a late left turn. Further down was four cop cars and six or seven uh, policemen. And I just thought, what a dirty, dirty thing, eh? Well, well what, you know what I felt? <laughs> let, me, let me just, uh, this is a bit of an uh, interesting uh, concept here, but I thought, boy, oh boy, are we highly over-policed today on this element, considering what's going on in, in, in the world of uh, crime and, and where things are, that we can take the resources of six or eight policemen and four, four uh, cop cars to pull over a late left-hand turn. And I know, I know you're going to say, well, hang on, you know, the policing of traffic and enforcement, it just seemed a little overloaded that one day. Traffic is always the number one complaint. Mm-hmm. I mean, every party that I've gone through throughout my career, you know, everybody comes up with a ticket story. Well, I've got them <laughs> sure. too. I've got them too. You know, I, I've been given tickets before in the past too, and, and what, I think, what a dirty ticket. I mean, even coming, hey, the last ticket I got was when I first moved up here, and I'm coming down that hill from Vernon where it drops to 90 at the top of the hill. Yeah. And I got nailed as I came around the corner because I was going 102 or something, 103. So I thought, wow, what a garbage ticket. Wait, wait, wait a second. No professional courtesy? No, no prof- um, Zero professional courtesy. That's changed over the years, too. There used to be professional courtesy, but not anymore. I mean, now that all went by the wayside because uh, of certain complaints. Anyways, you're always going to hear about the tickets and traffic. And traffic guys, well, I'm, I'm not a traffic guy. I think in my entire career, maybe I gave away one or two full ticket books in my entire career. Right. Um, I, I would rather give the person a lecture 
Yeah. And then a ticket. I never, and there's this old saying, a lecture or a ticket, never both. And right. I couldn't handle it when a guy's giving me a lecture and the ticket. Look, give me <laughs> yeah, one yeah, or the other. Uh, I love it. Yeah. 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 Give I me one I've, or the other. I've certainly got both in my uh, in my time. Des, I'm sure you did. Oh, yeah, we, yeah. And, and, Des and, and I had a healthy dose of anti-authority in, in our youth. Well, Not disrespectful, but. Uh, I know I get it. And I, and I don't like tickets. It's just a necessary evil that you have to have traffic officers. Now, why are there so many of them? I don't know. Maybe and, and, and that was my issue. It was like, holy Jesus, look at the overload of personnel on this particular task okay, so, of the day, right? So maybe an answer to that is, I know nowadays they have, um, it's like the integrated homicide team. They have a, an integrated traffic enforcement team or a, or a traffic enforcement team dedicated to, 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 to just traffic. Mm-hmm. And so that may be a day where, the, you know, there's, they do all their stats on motor vehicle accidents, you know, et cetera. Um, and to, to where the high profile areas to give tickets are, like for high profile intersections where they're having issues. So maybe that day that they had those five guys there, that was the entire crew of the five, whatever guys they have. Traffic enforcement, traffic enforcement yeah. guys Kirk. doing that one day. Am I a traffic guy? No, I'm not. So but I'll, Kirk, is it is it fair to say that the lowest scores in the academy go into traffic? Can you, can you, oh boy, <laughs> you're going to get me in trouble. But like I said, I'm not a traffic guy, you know, and you know, cause you scored high yeah. at the Academy. It's like that yeah. cheers episode from years ago where Norm was bugging Cliff, you know, about the post office and anybody could be a, a postman. Remember that one? And the, yeah. and he had the chimpanzee at the post office. Yeah. I mean, you know, what are they, the famous saying they say, I'd, I'd rather have a, um, a sister in, you know, in something else, you easy, know, easy, yeah, yeah easy, <laughs> than a brother in traffic, right? You know, oh. yeah. <laughs> I know. I've had my experience on traffic guys too. You know, I think they'd give their own mother a ticket. So maybe those guys have less discretion. I don't know. Maybe I'm gonna make a lot of enemies, but I, I have never been a fan of of traffic. Well, next time I get pulled over, though, I am gonna say Kirk told me I could have a lecture or a ticket. <laughs> yes, I'm gonna take the lecture today. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I would love giving the lecture. You know, I, I felt better giving the lecture, and I think the guys actually that I did the lecture for probably thankful too. Well, he was right, right, and I watched him cruise away slowly, right, and I just sit back in my car and watch him cruise away slowly, but they never got the ticket, right? Yeah, right on. Oh, great. Well, listen, we've been at it uh, for a good hour here, and uh, what a what a great uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Hey, Kirk, any departing uh, story that you got that uh, crosses your mind? Anybody in witness protection you want to... Uh, well, I could give them all up unprotect? right now. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, you know, I just, it, it was a great career. I mean, like I said, I had, I had challenges in all parts of it, but it was a great career. I think Vancouver Police is an awesome police force. Um, they have a really good chief right now, uh, Adam Palmer. I have uh, family in policing. I have a lot of family that have been involved in policing. Oh, is that right? Yeah, my stepfather was a policeman. My wife, uh, her dad was a policeman. Uh, I have cousins in policing. I have nephews in policing. Okay. I have brother-in-laws in policing. So I come from a quite a big policing family. And the only message I could say to people out there is, you know, yes, you're going to get a ticket sometimes, and uh, just take it. And maybe you'll get some ag- aggressive police officer at times, but most of them there, like you said, why are people going to join the job? Why do people want to become a police officer? Well, I think the number one thing is. You, I remember saying this at your little excerpt when they asked, why do you want to become a police officer? And it was to help people. Mm-hmm. End of the line. That's it. That's the bottom line. Yeah, sincere. Yeah. So hug a cop, don't reach for his gun. Hug a cop, don't reach for his gun. Good point. They don't mind the odd reach around, but not for the guns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Kirk, this is a, a terrific afternoon with you. And uh, maybe uh, as things develop in, in our world and things change, uh, we might ask you to come back on. 
Sure, no Would, problem. You'd come back? Of course. Yeah. Awesome. Great guest. Thanks, Kirk. All right, thank Enjoy you. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks. Cheers. Hey, hey, hey. That was uh that was fantastic. That was a that was a really entertaining and and I think um educational chat about uh somebody who's worked the front lines in in law enforcement des so thanks for lining up kirk yeah no i really enjoyed that i i knew it would be um it would be as as good as it was knowing his history and and let's face it you know the uh being a a police officer in in uh, some of the areas in in downtown vancouver experienced a lot uh over of course uh you know quite a uh Expanded career, 35 years, uh, certainly. You know, seeing the differences from one decade to the next over that span is uh, was really insightful, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure he didn't get into, you know, half the detail or color that he, that he could have, uh, you know, considering his 30 years and, you know, on the job. Yeah, it certainly. It was great. It was great. And, you know, as things develop, as things are, you know, month to month here, I wouldn't mind, uh, you know, exercising that uh, that invitation back and and keep some of these uh, other conversations that are developing. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's get them back. Yeah. Um, what else is uh, itching your scratch, buddy? Well, look, man, um, like we, you know, we kicked off the show talking about summer and, and I was just reading an alarming article from uh, CTV News and it said, um, I, don't, I don't know if you're aware of this, I, the, the world is, um, it's ending. So I've, I'm just reading now that the Earth's average temperature set a new, this is an important word, unofficial record high on Thursday. And it was the third such milestone in a week that was already rated as the hottest on record. So you know, planetary average uh, hit 63 degrees Fahrenheit, Des, at 17.23 for those folks who are on the metric system, Celsius. Um, sorry? Scorching. Scorching. And, and you know, like I said, I mean, the article goes on. I, I don't want to, um, you know, bore our listeners with all this information, but, um, you know, it looks like every part of the world, including, you know, the Arctic, is is heating up. And this I find fascinating because... Like I said, it's it's the hottest day on record, and they've been they've been measuring temperature accurately since about 1800. So, you know that's important because the world is is you know 4.6 billion years old, and and we've we've got it, we've got it to a point where we're saying the hottest day, you know, on the planet, which is how, how this 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 article leads, was was just the other day. So the 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 first apparently you know four point you know, six or five point nine 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 billion years. You know, don't don't really count. Yeah. Um. And if if for the mathematicians that listen to our program, that is, you know, two hundred years on four point six billion is point zero 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 four percent. Yeah. So, with the the history of of the planet, what is uh, an optimum temperature? Is it? Sixty apparently not apparently not uh sixty three degrees. Right. Sixty two point sixty two point nine seems to be yeah. okay. Well several s- thousand years ago, just, just getting back to, you know, what you would call natural variability in, in changes and climate change is real, obviously. Yeah, we're not denying climate no. change. I yeah. mean you know, a few thousand years ago, several thousand years ago, uh this continent that we're on was uh covered in about two kilometers of ice. I mean, what what type of climate change or range of change happened to be able to ice over this continent? And then, of course, uh, what type of change climate-wise w- was able to melt that uh, that ice, what they would call the Ice Age? So 
you know, natural variability in climate and, and the environment is uh, fluid. T- totally agree. And, uh, you know, I, I, I only throw it out there because I, you know, one, we, we like to poke poke fun at the the enviro brigade as 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 you call it eco brigade eco eco not enviro is there an enviro brigade because if there isn't we should we should start one because they're probably going to give grants out for that so (laughs) free money never get on that um but i only bring it up because you know the if you were following you know the the news over the last three or four days i mean this has been the lead story right that the the world is ending as a function of this you know hottest day on record or hottest yeah number of days now so it it just it it speaks to sort of the as you said sort of sort of the you know maybe not dishonest but certainly not fully truthful approach to to reporting the news yeah and of course uh just recently if if you follow any of the solar scientists um there was an incredible just, uh, just Copernicus. He's the only guy who really pay attention to. Oh, is that right? Yeah, Co- just, Copernicus. Yeah, good. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> but uh, in the in the last short period of time here, there's been a record of uh, sp- sunspot activity, and of course, whenever there's sunspot activity, uh, a short while later is when Earth, you know, gets the uh, the radiation. Of course, the the effects of of sunspots, which create radiative heat. And uh, although starting in 2019, we were actually falling into what was called a, a, a solar minimum. But inside of this solar minimum, we've had a, a rash of, uh, of tremendous solar activity here in the last, uh, I think, month or two. And of course, there's no reference to, to any of the what's happening with the, with the solar activity. No, no, it's all it's all it's all our it's all, fault. It's all it's all it's our fault. It's all CO two yeah, emissions. Yeah. You know, of course, that's for another day. But uh, yeah, you no, know, I agree, and and I think I've sent you a couple of very funny meteorologists or or weather people that are on on TV and they're showing the maps. And of course, uh, there's the before and after, you know, that, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. There's one the other day showed Britain, they were getting uh, temperatures up around 29 and 30 and, and all, the whole map was in different colors of, uh, yellow to, you know, flaming orange, red, right. And only a few years ago with the same temperatures ever, you know, the map just looked normal with green, green areas yeah yeah yeah, yeah, and, yeah. but but you know 20, <laughs> and i i don't know at what point that we think things are extreme when it's 29 and 30 to me uh that's just summer yeah i mean especially you and i when we first got our driver's license back in uh in in the very early 80s uh we we headed for, for here, here here the, the okanagan and uh, uh i remember getting uh, absolutely smashed on heat stroke yeah right? yeah and no it, absolutely we were camping I mean, it, and People talking about that, you know, the 38 and the 42 degrees uh, here in the Okanagan. Well, you know what that is? That's the Okanagan. That's, yeah. It, it does that every year. Yeah, we'd, we'd race out here to get our, our week or 10 days of 35 degree plus weather every day, guaranteed, yeah. right? If it dropped below 30, um, you know, there, I don't think there was necessarily panic of the, of the masses or at the disco, right? I mean, I think pe- people weren't saying, oh my God, the ice age is upon us. Yeah. It was hot and it was consistent. Yeah, well, that's what you call the the Okanagan. It yeah. it is it is genuinely scorching hot. Uh, some areas uh, more than others. I was just in uh, the southern part of the uh, Okanagan around the uh, Oliver and Soyuz area her, uh, earlier this week, and and there's no doubt. You look at the landscape there; it's very much different from, let's say, up uh, you know Vernon and North. You know where mm-hmm. it's, there's some arid spots, but down there it's 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 dry. It's, it's a desert. It's, it's drier than English humor. 
<laughs> and and what else is uh, what else is happening? What do you want to uh, what do you want to talk about, man? What's well, you got, know what's got what's what's got your is it is it hackles up? Well, yeah, is it hackles? You know, not quite hackles. You know, I I got a little hair on my back, but it doesn't doesn't stand up. All right, I've I've seen it up, but that's okay. We'll talk about that another time. Yeah. Anyway, earlier this week uh, in the U.S., there was a su- Supreme Court uh, ruling here earlier this week. The uh, uh, the Biden administration and what some are calling this potentially the most important legal case in history. Oh, yeah. Believe it or not. Oh. Anyway, this lawsuit brought on by the states of uh, Missouri and Louisiana entered mountains of evidence in support of its case, illustrating that the U.S. government actors conspired to nullify the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution by threatening some of the tech giants that operate town square-style social media platforms to censor and, in some cases, outright ban accounts that were opining about subjects like the COVID origins, vaccine performance, Russian collusion, of course, the ever-so-famous Hunter Biden uh, laptop, uh, among other uh, items that they wanted to squelch, right? In this uh, lengthy document filed with the federal court describes that Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is extremely valuable for social media platforms. So threatening to amend or repeal the immunity that it provides is highly motivating to social media operators. So Section 30 allows social media platforms to enjoy a a liability exception for speech that is published on their platforms that some say is worth billions of dollars, right? Right, right. The real obscenity here, Stu, is that the First Amendment protects its citizens from government enacting laws that prohibit the establishment of religion and free exercise thereof, or abridging freedom of speech, or the press, etc., etc., right? What took place here is the government acted in concert, under threat, with these social media platforms to censor participants under the fake guise of private companies exercising their right to moderate moderate dialogue, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. The real conclusion is that you, the U.S. government believes only its views should be allowed to be widely disseminated is really the conclusion you could come to. But what's more, frighteningly, uh, more frightening, Stu, is uh, institutions in modern society defend and seemingly support the effort of the U.S. federal government to censor any speech labeled mis- or disinformation. You know, so they were really going in there and, and with some coercion that they would either amend to uh, Section 230, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Saying, you know, if you guys, we want you to censor speech on these subjects, uh, we also want you to ban this guy and that account and what have you. That kind of uh, evidence was was uh, was tabled. And uh, the Supreme Court judge uh, enacted an injunction against uh, several uh, U.S. Uh, institutions, such as the FBI and CDC and and so forth, many saying you can't make any contact with the you know the well, me, the the Facebooks and the Twitters and the uh, you know the Googles of the world. Well, praise praise him or her, whoever the the justice was that um, that did that. You know it. it it's funny. I mean, look, you know, we, we we do and say things, whether it's on the podcast or a cocktail parties that that you know not everybody agrees with, and maybe we've been at the odd party where nobody agrees with us. But um, we certainly encourage you and I, Des, always healthy debate, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. We know where we stand politically and, 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 you know, whether it's, you know, fiscally or socially as it relates to policies, we, we know where we stand. And, and uh, I love a good debate. If somebody wants to come in and, and, and espouse the virtues of, of socialism or, or communism or Marxism, I'm, I'm up for the chat. Let's have, let's have a conversation about it. And I know I'm, you know, only picking politics and, and this goes beyond that. But, um, you know, if God forbid there comes a time where we can't, you know, speak our mind um, on on topics like, you know, social or, or, or fiscal policy without being deemed, you know, uh, you know, a hate monger, then, you know, we're, we're in big trouble, man. We're in mm-hmm. big trouble. And, and if the government is reaching into these places now, and it appears that they are based on what you just shared, actively trying to censor... Um, Man, we're 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 nineteen eighty four. Man, we're we're all we're almost at the Orwellian state. Well, how how other way can you describe it? And then, oh, of course, what I do want to, uh, as an extension of that, we're seeing not the same but but similar efforts. You know, with with our new uh, Canadian Bill C eleven and uh, uh, Bill C eighteen that that touches on just the ability to uh, for a sitting government to decide. Through in in Bill C11's case, giving the the extraordinary powers to the CRTC mm-hmm. to be able to have uh, enforcement and oversight over things like we're doing here at the Pragmatics. Yeah, uh, no, right? I, I, absolutely. So anyway, it, it it's basically coming to a theater near you, if you want to call it to that. Uh, we have it here now in law with uh, C11 and C18. And I, I I mentioned this before. I I don't remember if it was on 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 air or not, Stu. But we do have to have a uh, a legal person uh, come on here that is is versed on on the consequences or the potential consequences of C11 and C18. These two bills that were recently put into law. So we do need to uh, seek out that particular. Uh, uh, guest and I, I totally agree, and I think it'd be you know a really healthy conversation, really important for our listeners to have, you know, a, a, a greater grasp of what both eleven and eighteen mean, C eleven, C eighteen. Um, and I agree. I think we should have a, a lawyer on. I think it'd be great to have a journalist on to have a have a really open conversation about this. And I think it'd be great for our listeners to understand what is, you know, on the other side of this as it relates to their you know, access to information, real information. Exactly. Yeah. So right on, man. Maybe yeah. next time or, you know, downstream. And, you know, this is where we get uh, at this uh, stage of the, the podcast, folks, uh, where we like to feature a BC wine. And, you know, I was saying I was in the in the Oliver area here earlier this week, and we, we hit a few wineries along the way, but one special situation was uh, our stop at the French Door Winery. A terrific property, a very, very beautiful building, a beautiful tasting room that is either indoors or out on the patio. The patio over, they're up on the uh, the Black Sage bench. Uh-huh. Uh, so their, their patio, tasting patio looks uh, west onto the West Bench, which would be like Tinhorn Creek and uh, right, right, you know th- that area over yep. there, and of course, uh, just over to the looking over to the uh, to the side diagonally is is the town of Oliver. So a very very beautiful setting, and uh, you know the winemaker, terrific history, and we got to meet uh, Brianna Tour, who is also a winemaker there, young young lady. 
who is their viticulturist as, as well. And we got to chat with her and uh, taste some really, really terrific wine. And, 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 and there's too many that they're, they're good at. Like they, they've got uh, too many that are, <laughs> that are just wonderful. But today we've, uh, we've selected their, their 2021 Malbec which is just an absolute treat. So, um, you know, I, I opened this up to let it breathe a little bit. Uh, yeah, man, had a, had a sip. Yeah. Um, you know, having never been there myself, uh, I'm certainly wanting to make the trip based on what you just shared, Des. Sounds mm. like a lovely spot, but I can tell you this, Malbec is very tasty. Um, I, I love the color. I love the, I love the nose. And, and honestly, it is a, it is a delicious, um, delicious Malbec, which yeah. is not my usual go-to. I mean, particularly not in this area, but this is delicious. Oh, yeah. And then that's why I thought, uh, you know, we, we bought a case, uh, you know, a, a mixed case of, of their offerings. And I, I thought... I'd, I'd bring this one because a it's 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 so darn wonderful, but we haven't done any Malbecs because we kind of pick on the uh, the BC wineries yep, here. Yep. And uh, and you're right. I mean, there is some Malbec kicking around in BC, but uh, it's not. Uh, I don't want to say it's rare. It's infrequent. Well, it's always disguised in something or or thrown in or something, in a blend. But, yeah, but, but all by itself, this is you know I, I I would challenge anybody who is a Malbec fan. Um, you know, to, to, to grab one of these and, and, and line it up or stack it up against other Malbecs you have in your collection. And I think you'll be really, really happy. And I think price-wise, Des, it's, it's reasonable, right? I mean, for, 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 for the quality, line, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's in that, you know, sort of $60 range, uh, which, you know, some might say is, uh, is getting up there. But uh, there's, there's no shortage of, uh, of quality on this, uh, this particular. So anyway, we wanted to... Um, Get out to French Door. Yeah, get out to French Door. It's in a beautiful uh, landscape down there, and of course on the very famous uh, Black Sage Bench. Uh, so it's just just up the, like just north up the road from from, from Burry Hill. Yeah, right on. So as you know, um, it's uh, it's quite the real estate. Get down there, uh, have a visit, and buy yourself a case of wine. <laughs> Support the BC economy. You bet. So hey, Stu. Um, yeah, man. We uh, we picked a tune here today to, to, to take us out, and uh, you know I know you and I have been uh, you know fans of Crowded House for for a while. Uh, they got a great body of work, and you know instead of picking you know a couple of their real you know big hits like uh, you know Dream It's Over, Don't um, Dream It's Over, Something um, So Strong, some, exactly Something So Strong. Anyway, those are the two big, well played uh, played a you know millions and billions of times but you know this is a tune uh, that i thought uh, you know is uh, of equal quality people have heard this one but uh, it's just not so highly played other than the, the two two we just mentioned nice history neil finn you know the guy that put uh, the band together isn't there a couple fins on this fish <laughs> well his brother tim and him of course had the band split ends split ends which was you know late 70s had a couple of great hits, mm-hmm. but um, you know they went on to different uh, uh, different directions. I, I didn't know the one Finn didn't make it into Crowded House. Well, Tim got invited back in for uh, an album later on. Okay, yeah, Tim joined on the Woodface album. Okay, yeah, and it joined on that that album and the subsequent tour 
I saw that tour in Edmonton. They were at the Jubilee. Uh, Jubilee. Oh, that would have been yeah. a good place to see. Yeah, these nice, guys. nice, intimate. Yeah. Uh, you know, seven thousand seat kind of soft seat spot. Yeah, 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 real good. Anyway, taking you out, folks. Thanks for listening. We we hope you enjoyed Kirk Starr, who was uh, definitely a, a star in this uh, interview. He was. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, we'll have him back again. Anyway, here we go, folks. Crowded house, distant sun. You would change. I don't pretend to know what you want when you come around and spin my talk time and again, time and again. So far, old enough to know who you are, wise enough to carry the scars without any blame.